Hello, mummers, and welcome back to episode three in our VBAC podcast series. Today, we're talking about the research behind VBACs and big babies, inductions, and going overdue. Enjoy! Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with Welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast, VBAC podcast series, lighting me up again. I think this is the proudest series I have released because it is so close to my heart. Having had my own VBAC journey, I feel so, so privileged and honored to be able to share this information with women because I know how important it is. I know how life-changing it can be to be equipped with the right information. I'm so lit up by this series. So if you haven't already, go back and check out episode one and two. In those episodes, we cover the top tips from a midwife's perspective on how to successfully prep yourself for a VBAC. We also then cover in episode two, the research and evidence around what are the success rates for a VBAC? And we pick apart all of that, which is amazing. We talk about care providers and whatnot. And this episode, We're covering three main topics and the research around it. We are covering, quote unquote, big babies, what that actually means, how ultrasounds, you know, record this, what is the accuracy of them? How does this influence your chances of having a successful VBAC? Success is such a hard word to say. (laughs) We are also talking about how important it is about whether your provider supports or doubts your ability to birth, especially when it comes to around how big your baby might be. We talk about inductions for VBACs. Are they possible? How might they do it? What is the efficacy? What is the um, reasoning for it? Uh, What is the safety around it? We cover all things inductions for VBACs. And then we cover another topic super close to my heart. We cover going quote unquote overdue. We talk about post dates. We talk about what is the risk of going overdue over 40 weeks. We talk about, oh, it's not even 40 weeks. That's not technically overdue. You'll hear all about this in the podcast. I went to 42 weeks with my third baby. I had a successful VBAC. Uh, I feel very passionate about this topic because I know the roller coaster ride that is those women feeling pressure that they haven't gone into natural labor before a certain date. It is a lot of pressure. It causes a lot of anxiety. And again, I don't think it's something that a lot of women have access to the research behind it. And why? Why are we worried about going overdue? What? What? Is the evidence telling us is a problem? And does this affect our success of having a VBAC? And we cover all of this. I get asked these questions so often. So I know this episode is for you right now. For anyone going on a VBAC journey, you are likely to come up against these factors because often the reason you had a Caesar in the first place is because of inductions or because you had a suspected B baby or because you went overdue and then um, you had some sort of intervention. I know that's a big reason why women have C-sections in the first place. So I know these are going to be relevant to so many women. So please, please, please share this episode, share this whole series with anyone you know who is even dipping their toe in the VBAC world. It is so important to be able to reassure women with the right information. And I have interviewed Julie and Megan from the VBAC link who you met in episode two, but just in case you haven't listened to that, they are doulas who have created an entire resources library, a website and Instagram 
a following around supporting women through the VBAC journey. They are epic. If you want to check them out, go to at the VBAC link and please send them some love if you love this episode. And please come over to my socials at Physio Laura and let me know what you got out of this episode. Maybe let me know what was your experience with having a big baby or an induction or going overdue? Did this affect your ability to birth the way you wanted to birth? Like what do you wish you knew back then that you now know? And maybe what did you learn from this episode that you want to take forward into your next journey i would so love to hear from you and if you want to look at all these episodes at once remember this is a five-part series so we have two amazing episodes still coming up talking about uterine risk uterine rupture what are the stats around that we also talk about finding the right care provider and we really piece apart the importance and how to do that what questions to ask them uh, VBAC birth plans, all of that, we cover that. If you want to absorb all this information all at once rather than waiting for it to be released on the podcast, all these episodes are pre-uploaded inside my online membership, The Pregnancy Posse. Plus, we have weekly workouts, keep you fit and strong for your VBAC journey. We have a whole resources library on preparing physically and mentally for labor and birth plus a beautiful community of mamas, plus you can ask me all your questions. I do Q&As on there. You have pretty much direct access to me. So if you have any questions, I'm an open book. I'd be more than happy to answer them. So if that sounds interesting and like it's inviting to you, please head on over to thepregnancybossy.com and you can check it out. But without further ado, let's talk big babies, inductions, post dates, and how this may influence your VBAC journey. Enjoy. Awesome. Now, big babies, uh, this is another hot topic. And again, one that I went through, essentially the reason I had my first Caesar was because I was induced because I had a suspected big baby, which I did. <laughs> Turns out all my kids are quote unquote big babies. Um, so I've learned a lot along this journey and I get a lot of women writing into me to ask like, what, what happens if I, I want to have a VBAC, but I have a big baby? Um, so the sorts of questions we have around this topic are, what, what are the facts saying about big babies? How accurate are ultrasounds? Does having a big baby reduce your chance of having a VBAC? Um, and maybe if you've got any advice for women who feel a bit scared um, and who need a little bit of empowerment and confidence around the idea of giving birth vaginally to a quote-unquote big baby yeah you know and we hear that that's another really common one in our inbox is big baby like hey I was induced for a uh, suspected big baby my baby was seven eight pounds you know all this stuff and so it's so hard to even know like what is what is a big baby like is an eight pound baby a big baby or is that a normal baby and so um the term it's called macrosomia and it is considered where a baby is above is it nine four julie nine four um yeah nine four but some places say eight pounds 13 ounces and that's another statistic that can get a little confusing yeah yeah um so in like nine four and, and that's 4,500 grams. Aha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, grams, grams, grams. Um, so- Which is, sorry to interrupt, that's interesting though because a lot of where I've worked, uh, four kilos and above, which is 4,000 grams, is considered macrosomium. So yeah, you're saying so 4,000 4, is the eight pounds, 13 eight ounces. Pounds, oh. 13 and then 4,500 is the nine pounds, four ounces. And yeah, so okay. there's a little bit, of, little, little bit of wiggle room there too. Yeah, yeah. 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 And eight pounds, 13 ounces. This is my personal opinion. Personal opinion. There's no like evidence on this. 
I don't believe that is called a big baby. I don't think that's a big baby at all. Like, do they have a little bit more chunk in the cheeks and maybe around the thighs? Sure, a lot of eight pound babies do, but I have seen 10 and a half pound babies come out of vaginas and those babies are big babies. Like they are chunky, right? Smalls. And yeah, they, oh, this one baby coming out, just shipment cheese. Um, I mean, it, yeah, like it just depends. But like she was saying, there's kind of some studies. So, you know, four to 45. Um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's considered a big baby. And so like one of the questions is too, is like, well, should I have a C-section because I have a suspected big baby? It depends. Depends on up to the mom too, right? Like mm. I had a client that was told she had a 12 pound baby and her ultrasound could vary plus or minus two pounds. So if you hear your baby's 10 pounds and you hear your baby's 14 pounds or anywhere in between, it kind of scares you, Yeah. right? Because if we think of vaginas, they're not very big and they do stretch, <laughs> but they only stretch so far. Right. And I know Julie's laughing at me. No, right I now, just love you. I'm, it's adorable. I'm just seeing like real talk here. It's scary. It scared her half to death when she heard her baby could be up to 14 pounds. Right. Yeah, cool. um, and so she had this ultrasound. They told her this, they're like, yeah, your baby's probably, you know, plus or minus two pounds at 12 pounds. And so she's like, yeah, let's do a C-section. She had a seven pound, four ounce baby. So mm. little inaccurate, you know, like for sure. And when we talked about, you mentioned ultrasounds, like they can, they can vary. Sometimes they're actually like spot on, like sometimes, fairly off. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they're just off a couple ounces or even just one pound. But then sometimes they're like this mama where it's just like, I mean, seriously 10 to 14 pounds and this baby's seven pounds like low seven pounds not a big baby at all and she had a c-section and she was like I didn't need that I didn't I didn't need that I would have gone for a vaginal birth and you know but she was scared into this and um it's common it's one of the main reasons for a cesarean it's people are told they have a big baby and they probably can't deliver vaginally I mean I was told I didn't necessarily have a big baby. I was told that I had a pelvis that was too small, right? And so it's so hard when we hear these babies are too big, but it does, it happens all the time. Mm. And the, the ultrasounds, I mean, is there like an actual, I don't know that Julie is like, but I don't even know. She's like <laughs> Einstein when it comes no, to, <laughs> she is, when it comes to st statistics, like she is like, spot on she just loves them and I like they overwhelm me numbers overwhelm me yeah but, um, with you Megan like an, yes oh it's too much is there an actual like number or has there been an actual study at just exactly how accurate birth weight or even head circumference is with ultrasound do we have that I, I don't um, know if I've ever seen it every I don't think there has actually been a study like that there may be, but I've never as far as I can one, recall, I, 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 my gosh, I is it, we'll ask the question in our VBAC community. We have 14,000 members in our VBAC group on Facebook. And you asked that you tell someone, oh my gosh, my doctor says my baby is measuring 11 pounds. They think I should just schedule a C-section. I don't know what to do. And you'll see comments and comments and comments. My baby said they were going to be 11 pounds. It was born to be seven pounds. My baby said it was measured nine pounds. It was, it was actually born and be six pounds. Like, it, I mean, it are just notoriously inaccurate 
Mm, yeah. Exactly. And I guess what the bigger, for me, what the bigger question is beyond this is why do we doubt our ability to birth big babies? So right. I guess that's, that's the bigger one for me. Cause I'm like, whether ultrasounds were accurate or not, let's say they're 99% accurate. What weight makes someone what? feel comfortable to birth vaginally or to attempt to birth vaginally? Like, you know, if you're a bigger woman, do you feel more comfortable if your baby's going to be 10 pounds versus a smaller framed woman? Or if your mum birthed a big baby, do you feel more comfortable? Like, I'm, I'm so curious to know what it is that makes women feel confident or not confident about these sizes. And I guess, like you were saying, Megan, to me, because I've only had four kilo plus babies, which is uh, eight pound 13, so about nine pound babies. That just seems to be how my body makes babies. And two came out cesarean and one came out vaginally and I didn't have a perineal tear. So obviously my perineum was able to accommodate the size of a four kilo baby. Um, It's just, it's very interesting to me. And it sounds like, like what you're both saying, like there's really not a lot of evidence around that. I interviewed a midwife recently about what you were saying, Megan, about my pelvis is too small to birth a baby. And she was saying that this is actually such a rare, true statistic. And in developing um, countries, it can happen if there is like malnutrition when someone is growing and their pelvis therefore does not grow to its full size. But in like developed countries, this is actually super, super rare. Um, So it's just so interesting to me that we even have this dialogue around, could our babies be too big for our pelvises? It's just like, where did this come from? Why, why is that a dialogue that we're having at the moment? It's just interesting. And I, I totally get how women, I thought my pelvis wasn't big enough for my baby, but I don't believe that to be true now that I've proven otherwise. But I think it's because I was interfered with too soon I then got this story because I didn't give birth vaginally that oh well maybe I'm not built that way and I just wonder how many women around the world have this story about them that's not actually true but could never be proven Mm -hmm. otherwise right yeah well and we hear all the time like whenever I try and tell somebody what I do (laughs) that doesn't know anything about a lot about birth or C-sections or V-backs or anything. Um, I'll say like, oh yeah, I own a childbirth education company that focuses on V-back. Mm. And I'll hear every once in a while somebody say, oh, I wish I could have had a V-back, but I am one of those women whose pelvises are just too small to yep. birth a baby. And- or or my body just doesn't dilate, you know? Yeah, my body just so that, and it, and it kind of breaks my heart because they are so sure this medical system and our culture to, to disbelieve our own body's abilities and trust so heavily in our medical system has conditioned these parents to fully believe that they are just broken in some way and they can't do it. Yeah. When in reality, there's a many things that probably led to their inability. I say their inability, but the, in, that, that probably led to their initial cesarean in the first place that might have been able to be prevented if they have been supported in proper ways. Yeah, correct. And I think that's, for me, such a big part of coaching women through the VBAC journey is what stories do you have about yourself and your body and your belief in birth? Because I think that's, there's so much to unravel after you've had a Caesar. 
about your beliefs in your abilities to be able to give birth a different way. And I know for me, that was, that was the biggest part. I get asked a lot about say physical preparation. What exercises did you do to achieve your VBAC? And I just think for me, the physical was such a small part of it. It was the mental, it was the unraveling about these deep seated beliefs that my body can't do it. I wasn't built for this, you know, oh, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll make do. And I got full body goosebumps on the weekend because a girlfriend of mine was attempting a VBAC and she was starting to really doubt herself because she went quote unquote post dates and she booked a Caesar for 42 weeks because she thought, you know what, if I get to there, nothing's happened. I'm cool, whatever, like it's fine. And the day before she had this amazing home birth and she sent me this photo and I just got full body goosebumps because I know that is going to change her life and her stories and what she passes down to her children forever. Like the, the, and that's a moment of like 24 hour window between having another Caesar without attempting to put her body into labor versus having had this amazing experience. And I just think that's so cool that she got to experience that her body can do this because it can and it did and she I know she had so many doubts about it um so yeah I just think it oh gives me all the goosebumps it's so cool so um okay big babies was there anything else we wanted to chat about when it came to the big baby topic or shall we Um, move on to our next kind of maybe want to add a little thing in here it might be better for the provider section but um just a little sliver is that if your provider suspects you have a big baby your risk for having a C-section goes up by 40 to 50%. Just if your provider thinks Thanks. you're going to have wow. a big baby. That's and so if you find that your provider is talking a lot about, oh, you know, your last baby was over nine pounds, or I don't know, like you're really petite. Those tips are kind of small. We can kind of try. I'm not sure if it'll work. If your if your provider is consistently putting a lot of focus on the size of your hips, or how big they think your baby is, it might be a sign that you need a more supportive provider because just that bias gets carried along and holds a lot of weight in the delivery room. That's well, and it's, it's, it's also hard to have faith and feel good when your own provider doubts your own ability. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's really important. I remember my midwife saying to me, I got really bad lightning crutch. And I had told myself a story because it was really intense. It didn't feel like that usual pressure women talk about. It felt like someone was stabbing me in the vagina. I and, felt that with my second. Yeah. It was awful. And I had told, because I had that with all of mine and I had told myself a story that that meant my baby just wasn't quite getting in the right spot because it didn't feel like a normal pain. It felt a bit more, you know, pathological. And it was like, oh, they obviously just don't fit. That's it. That's them trying really hard, but they're just not getting in the right spot. Cause I'd had these two Caesars, which had affirmed that bias for me. And I just remember my midwife, actually supportive care providers, second birth cesarean midwife said to me, don't worry, love that baby was never coming out of your vagina. Good example of what, what? Um, a supportive care provider is not. Yeah. And then my midwife in my third pregnancy I was telling her about this lightning crutch and she said to me, no, that is 
a really good sign. That means your baby is really nuzzling down there. It's getting ready for birth. And she just completely flipped this story I had about my body and how it was working. And I think that shows the power of a supportive care provider who believes in your ability to birth Mm -hmm. versus one that doubts it. Because I see a huge difference with how I felt about myself having someone cheerleading for, no, 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 this is a good thing. Your body is made to do this. You can do this. Versus someone who kind of, you know, I think she was trying to be supportive, but, you know, trying to, you know, tell me that it was never going to come out that way. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, she was maybe trying to validate the reason, you know, everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's where I don't at all have any ill will towards her because she she was trying to do the most supportive thing she could, which was to help me feel like the Caesar was the best option, the only Uh way it was going to go. And you know what, in the moment, maybe it gave me some comfort in hindsight. It gave me a really bad belief story, but at the moment, yeah, maybe it gave me some comfort. So this is again, where it's like, it's not her problem. It's my problem. It's about me really owning what beliefs do I have about my body and how are they going to serve me or not serve me if I really want to give V back a shot. So I think that's Mm -hmm. really important. Okay. Now you mentioned before, because this obviously ties into it, but inductions and a lot of big babies equal inductions, but what's the go with inductions and VBAC? So I'll give my little story on this. I was not, was I, oh my God, my memory is terrible now. Was I induced with my second? I don't think I was, but I think I was told that's right. I was told that I couldn't be induced hormonally, only like mechanically if that, um, so I couldn't have any of like the syntocin or whatnot because the contractions may be too strong for the Mm -hmm. scar, but I could potentially be induced mechanically like ruptured. A Foley catheter. Yeah. Or catheter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And which I didn't have any of, um, but what's the go, what's the go with inductions? You know, induction, um, a lot of people, a lot of providers all over the world are like, exactly like that. You can't have any hormones. We can't induce you. It's not safe. Yeah. We, if you're not, if you haven't had a baby by 39 and 40 weeks, you have a C-section because there's nothing we can do. And I'm just going to myth bust that one right now. That's like so false. <laughs> like it's so false. You, VBAC can be induced and VBAC can be induced and ended with a vaginal birth. It really can. And it can be induced with Pitocin. There are a couple drugs out there that um, are a no-go. Um, it's Cervidil and Cytotech. And I know some providers even do Cervidil. I've seen that in our group, Julia. I'm sure you have too. Yeah, the inc- the, yeah with Cytotech, it increased the rupture risk by tenfold. So like 10 times. That's a massive yeah. increase in, yeah, in rupture yeah. rates. And that's why VBAC kind of has a bad name is because they were using that for induction in the nineties and nobody knew that it was, it was correlated or it was causing all of these massive ruptures. And then all of a sudden VBAC had all of these huge spikes in the incidence of uterine rupture. And so that's why VBAC kind of got a really scary name with it because of side attack. And so years later they realized, oh yeah, it's because the cytotech is completely overworking the uterus. There's no way to take it out and there's no way to avoid this risk. So, um, um, cytotech is completely contraindicated for VBAC. They have since, um, discouraged use of cervidil, but it's not explicitly 
contraindicated like Cytotec is. However, most providers hold it in the same regard because it is a cervical ripening agent, uh, prostaglandin, artificial cervical ripener. Um, the reason why cervidil is a little less scary is because you, um, it's a vaginal insert that you can remove, so it can kind of slow down the effects. However, Cytotec gets absorbed completely into the cervix and into the uterus. There's no taking it out. There's no way to, to stop it and minimize it. So artificial prostaglandins are, are contraindicated they mm. across the board. Well, Cytotec is the only one specifically, if I'm speaking like 100% factually, but most providers won't even touch um, Cervidil or there's another one uh, whose name I always forget either, but yeah. yeah. Um, the hard thing is a lot of providers won't use Pitocin and things like that. And, you know, it, this, these are conversations to have with your provider. If you're wanting a VBAC, it's like, Hey, I, if I get to such and such week, what are our steps? Do I have to schedule a repeat cesarean or can I be induced? And if so, what are your methods? Um, so it has a bad rap. A lot of people also think that if you get, if you get induced, you're, you're for sure going to rupture. And it, you know, all of these interventions, they increase risk little bits, right? I mean, there's interventions. If we are driving in a car and we use an intervention of a cell phone, we increase our risk of getting in a car accident. It's again, one of those things where you have to decide if it's an acceptable risk for you to be induced. Mm. Yes. So, and I guess that's really good to know because there are going to be women in situations where induction is a good option. Mm -hmm. What I guess I then zoom out and think is why do women need to be induced? So if you're healthy and well and attempting a VBAC, why, why do you need to be induced? And you mentioned the due date thing, and this is something I'm really like wrapping my head around since I've given birth because I gave birth at 42 weeks. 42 weeks, yeah. yeah. And I know women that have given birth at 43 weeks. And and so I guess what's your take on the due date, you know, when women are coming and saying, oh, my provider won't go beyond 40 weeks. And is there evidence to show? Because I do remember asking my obstetrician about this. I said, how far over can I go? Which probably is the wrong question to ask anyway, because it really should not necessarily be a, I tell you, it should be a collaboration Mm -hmm. of how far I feel comfortable going. But I was told, I think I could go 10 days um, and then repeat Caesar if um, I hadn't given birth by then. And I tell you what, it puts so much anxiety on women to know that there is this time limit of if you don't go into labor before this, you don't get your V back. And it's just really interesting to me because I asked my obstetrician, oh, okay, like, is there increased risk of uterine rupture if I go beyond 10 days? And I could be wrong. So you would know this better, Julie, with your stats. But he said, no, it's just the same risks they apply for the placental function. So, you know, that um, they only go to X amount over because they're concerned about the placenta not functioning so well after that, which I've also come to realize is so varied. Some some people go to 40 weeks, other hospitals go to 40 plus 10, others go to 42, others go to whenever your body is ready to give birth provided everything's looking good and well. So is there any clear guideline or evidence to suggest that women can't go beyond a certain gestation if they're attempting a VBAC? 
No, 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 no. <laughs> um, no, there's nothing. In fact, there is evidence or there's guidelines contrary to that. ACOG in their VBAC bulletin does not put in any arbitrary deadline on um, inducing for VBAC due to post dates. And ACOG also has a secondary bullet or a second bulletin referencing um, induction of labor due to post date. Um, oh my gosh, I forget the name of the of the article, but it just talks about generally about post-date pregnancies, the complications that comes with it, and post-date meaning like 40 weeks and beyond, right? Yeah. So once you have 40 weeks, all the things that are associated with that. And in it, its guidelines rec says that like, because up until a few years ago, um, doctors were kind of electively inducing people at 37, 38 weeks, kind of depending on what the parent wants, what the doctor wants. But now like ACOG had to put this bulletin out to set the standard that you cannot be electively do, induced until 39 weeks because it was causing a lot of issues with the babies and their ability to breathe and absorb oxygen and their heart and lungs and all sorts of things. So ACOG put out this bulletin and in it, it specifically um, restricts inducing before 39 weeks unless there's a true medical, medical. indication. Yeah. But it also says that between 39 and 41 weeks, induction may be recommended um, or may be used 41 to 42 weeks and six days. I'm sorry, 41 weeks to 41 weeks and six days. Induction may be necessary due to, um, you know, like you said before, like sometimes plus, they just plus. kind of like make like to me, like not necessarily make things up, but just kind of say what they think is the right thing to do. So they say 41 to 41 weeks and six days, it may be necessary. Um, or what do they use the term suggested? They say suggested, suggested and yeah. then 41 weeks, six days to 42 weeks and, and six days, they say it may be recommended. And they don't specifically say that induction due to post-date is necessary until after 42 weeks and six days. Mm -hmm. Everything is uh, using terms like recommended and suggested up until the term, mm -hmm. uh, the, or up until the point of pregnancy, they get to where you are actually hit the 43 week mark of your pregnancy. Yeah. But here in the United States, at least, we're seeing induction of elective inductions of labor at 39 weeks, giving out like it's candy or chocolate yeah. cake at a birthday. It's, yeah. um, and nobody's talking about the 42 week and six day mark. And in that guideline, Which is a whole it, month later, pretty much. I know. Like that's, that's a big it's crazy. difference. Yeah. Um, but then in that guy, same guideline, ACOG specifically goes on to say that the same, essentially, I don't remember the exact verbs, but it essentially says that the same centers apply to VBAC. Mm. They're the same. And there's no indication and no risk of uterine rupture related to post-date pregnancies. Yeah. And so when I say again, post-date, because um, using the term very loosely, because technically you're not post-date until after you hit that 42 week and six day mark. Yes. So and I just yeah. think that that is going to be such a powerful piece for women listening to this because the classic story of what I see is, I call it long gestation, you know, women who don't naturally go into labor before 40 weeks, like people like myself who don't go into natural labor until 42 weeks. So we're slightly longer than, you know, the, the box that we've created for women to be, you know, having natural onset of labor, but for those women who got induced first time round because they went quote unquote overdue, 
induction led to a cascade of interventions and then they ended up with their primary cesarean have that story then second time around when they're attempting a VBAC of you know how long am I going to gestate and a lot of the time I think a big reason why they had a seizure in the first place is because they weren't ready to labor they weren't ready for their body to give birth just yet and for some women I have some women and I sometimes looked at them and thought oh I wish mine went like that who get induced and it's like the easiest breeziest thing in the world right there's, there's other and they're like that was the best birth of my life and I'm like that's amazing I'm so wrapped for them but there's a lot of women where induction just does not work where your body is just not ready it does not want to be induced and you end up with the Caesar and then you have that story second time round of well, will I ever go into birth naturally? And when will this happen? And I know so many women who have been in that. So that's really cool to hear that your risk of say uterine rupture is no higher if you go to 42 plus six versus 39. Um, the, The reasons for induction, you need to really sit down and talk to your care provider about why they're talking about post dates and what their reasoning is for it. Um, Because when I really sat down with my OB and talked it through, I I was like, oh, there's really not a lot of reason right now why I can't keep going. It's just that I need to advocate for myself here. Um, I need Mm -hmm. to say, well, I feel comfortable. Baby's moving well. I'm really in tune. I actually feel really comfortable to continue this pregnancy. Um, And I think I know a lot of women who end up advocating for themselves like that, going into natural labor and everything works out really, really nicely. So I just think that's really cool for women to hear. And I think it's really cool in general, VBAC or not VBAC to normalize going beyond 40 weeks pregnant. Because I think if you don't know anyone who's given birth beyond 40 weeks and you think that every day after 40 weeks means that you're severely overdue or something's not right, or your body's never going to get labor, then you're going to have this negative story again around what your body is capable of doing. And it's so normal for women to go to 42 weeks and Mm -hmm. 42 plus six, apparently. So I just think it's really cool to normalize longer gestation because it's not something that we see a lot of. And a lot of women are giving birth at 39 weeks and that becomes the norm. So 42 weeks seems like a lot of time longer to be pregnant. So I just think that's a really cool conversation to be having around that. Hey mamas, I really, really, really hope you got a lot out of that episode. I hope that if you are that woman sitting there right now on her VBAC journey who has been influenced or, you know, affected in one way or another by the big baby induction or post dates chit chat, I really hope this episode helped to allay any fears you might have had or any questions you might have had, any concerns, anything that you haven't been able to be answered in the really like objective way so I know that there's a lot of fear-mongering around VBACs there's a lot of I think personally misleading information um, where you're told you know really like scary things which are not necessarily based in fact they're more opinions and someone's lived experience and personal bias towards risk um, rather than being objective. And that's what this podcast is. Yeah, I'm sure we're, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, in my own ways. I'm very passionate about VBACs, so I'm not not biased, but I'd just like to think that I'm presenting this information in as an objective way as possible. So we're talking about this is what the evidence says, take with it what you wish and use that information to make the best decision for you. So I really hope that you got a lot out of this episode. As always, please jump over to at Physio Laura and let me know 
what you're enjoying about this podcast series, what your favorite bits have been, what questions you might have. Because if we have a lot of follow-up questions, I'm so open to doing like an extra Q&A or some sort of bonus episode. So I really want to hear from you. And please go and give Julie and Megan some love over at the VBAC link. Check out all their resources. Let them know if they've helped you in any way, shape or form. They would so love to hear that. Um, They have an amazing, amazing resource base to help women on the VBAC journey. And I'm so grateful to have been able to interview them. And as always, remember these episodes, all five in this series, we have two more coming up, which are amazing on uterine rupture and risk. And we also talk about finding the ideal provider and care and environment for your VBAC journey. Those two episodes are coming up, but if you want all five at once without having to wait, they are inside the Pregnancy Posse. That is my online membership program. We have over a hundred Q and A's with me answering all your pregnancy questions. We have a whole resources library with yoga, meditation, managing pelvic pain, pubic pain, rib pain, back pain, all of the things that come up in your pregnancy, I have you covered. It's a beautiful, beautiful online community. You can ask any questions to me or to the community of mamas that are in there. And I think you're going to love it. If that sounds good to you, go and check out thepregnancyposse.com and you can find out more information. Otherwise, mamas, subscribe to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast so you don't miss the two episodes we have coming up. Next week, we will be talking about uterine rupture. Hot on everyone's mind. Anyone who's going through a VBAC journey will want to know about uterine rupture. What is the actual risk? What influences that risk? What do I have to worry about? All of your questions will be answered in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, hope you're having a wonderful day and I will talk to you soon.